I would like to welcome you tonight. Uh, welcome to all of you who have joined us online. We're thankful for you that you can watch and listen tonight. Uh, welcome and hi to all the middle school and high schoolers that are over in the hub watching. You guys are awesome. And hello to the fifth and sixth graders up in the balcony. Hey! Yeah! All right. And of course, welcome to all of you who have joined us here on the main floor of the Worship Center. Thank you for uh, being here tonight. I think you'll be very glad that you came. I want to remind you that we are wearing masks in and out of the building and in common spaces, like the bathroom or the courtyard. But once you found your seat, then um, you're free to take the mask off. Masks are optional then. Uh, speaking of bathrooms, in case you don't know where they are, there are some right in that direction, and there are some behind me in the hallway there. We will be taking a break. So, we're, 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 <laughs> we're letting Randy talk for quite a while, but we will be taking a break. So, uh, um, just you can, if you can, we'll wait till the break for that, but if you need to in the meantime, the bathrooms are back there and behind me here. Well, we are in the middle already of Holy Week. Here we are, Wednesday night. And of course, we set aside these times every year to remember what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. It's important. And uh, we want to look again this year at the most important week in all of history. And we're going to take a long-running start at it. So we're going to back up, and we're going to begin by looking at the, the whole ministry of Jesus Christ. That's tonight, really. We'll get most of it in. And then on Friday night, we're going to look mostly at that last week, all the way through the crucifixion and the burial. And then on Saturday and Sunday, we get to celebrate the resurrection. And so we want to look again with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind at these wonderful truths of our Lord and Savior. And we are very happy that Dr. Randall Smith uh, can be our tour guide as we go through the life of Christ. Randy is the director of Christian Travel Study Programs, and he and his wife, Dottie, they raised their kids in Jerusalem, at least part of that time. And as he was developing these travel study programs in places like Israel and Jordan and Egypt and Turkey and Greece and Cyprus and Italy and maybe some other places in addition to that. Um, so with all this extensive study uh, in the interconnection between the Bible, its contemporary history, archaeology, and cultures of the ancient world, Dr. Smith has taught the Bible in the Bible lands from the back of a camel and from the deck of a ship, and he's been doing that for several decades. And some of you, I know, have joined him, maybe even on the camel, I don't know, but uh, on some of these trips. And if you're interested in some of the trips that are being planned, that are being set up right now, afterwards, uh, there's a table there in the courtyard with some information. You can even talk with Randy about some of the things that are planned. That's an awesome experience. I can recommend it. Now, as a pastor... Randy has carefully developed a curriculum and taught through the entire Bible each year with students from Great Commission Bible Institute, and a few from our church uh, have been uh, through that program and really benefited from it, and we're thankful for it. And a lot of us use 
uh, his resource, One Hour, One Book, which is an online resource, which is uh, uh, one hour of the content of each book of the Bible. And so it's a, it's a wonderful resource. So we're just glad that Randy can be here. So we're just going to hand it over to Randy and let him get going. Again, we'll take a break in the middle. So buckle up. And we're going to take another look. We're going to look again at the life of Christ. Maybe I should pray as you come. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son into the world as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Lord, he, uh, we just want to um, steep and soak in the wonderful truths of this story. For many of us, it's a familiar story, and yet Jesus Christ is infinitely great. And every time we look again at this story, our hearts are moved and touched and we're reminded of how much you love us and what you've done for us and what you've called us to. And so I pray that your spirit would work through Randy this evening. In your name, amen. Amen. It is great to be with you. I love it that the fifth graders are right up there. How you doing, guys? You doing okay? We're going to have some fun together. This is a combination of things. On the one hand, it's sort of class material, but I'll try not to make it like a dry class. On the other hand, this is a story that changed my life. This is a story that changed many of your lives. This is the story of our Savior and what he did. And we're asking people to follow Jesus, and a lot of them don't even know what he said and did. And in fact, the day I gave my heart to Jesus, I didn't know most of the stories myself. But the real problem, I think, happened a few years ago, or at least it became aware, I became aware of it a few years ago. I came home for Christmas from the Middle East. And I was home listening to the way people were communicating the story of Jesus, and it sounded like Star Wars. Long ago and far away from a galaxy far beyond. Da -da -da -da, da -da -da. It, it just, nothing was what I knew. Because the truth is, I knew a place that's very, very different. Now, this is not from Jerusalem. But when you look at this, what's this guy's deal? This guy doesn't come from your culture. He doesn't come from my culture. What if our faith was derived from a series of stories that were as foreign to us culturally as whatever this guy's doing this afternoon. I think one of the problems is that well-meaning people, without any real understanding of the cultural background, historical background, geographical background, geological background, anthropological background, they're trying to tell a story and they don't know what the stage looks like. The props are there, but they're not sure what they do. And so what I want to do is I want to talk to you from the stage, if I can. Now, my story began with an archaeological expedition. I was involved, one of like a couple of hundred people, and I was a very minor player. And if you look at that slide, all the way to the right of the slide, you'll see a platform, then you'll see like three light-colored stones, and then you'll see a room to the right. That's my room. I dug in Old Testament Jerusalem, and I was working on a bathroom floor from 722 B.C. It's the cleanest bathroom floor I've ever had in my life because I cleaned it with a little tiny brush. And what we discovered 
was that in 700 BC at the time of Isaiah, they had flushed toilets. Now that probably won't change your theology unless you have a very strange theology. But what it will do is help you understand the technology as it existed at that time. So I worked in forensic archaeology, so we do tombs and sewers. I had sewers, but other people get tombs. The one nice thing about uh, forensic archaeology is the clients are all dead and no one complains, so it's not so bad. It's a pretty decent way to make a living. This was a house from the Old Testament. And that platform replaces what the archaeologists took out, which was the floor of the main body of the house. And that house was no more than 10 by 20. That was the whole house. And it was four rooms, little tiny rooms, broken up by pillars. And it's intelligently called by archaeologists a four-room house. Now, here's the thing. Much of the time, we get our stories from Christian art. But Christian art tells you a lot about the time of the artist and nothing about the time of the event. And a lot of them, the artists have so stylized. I mean, come on, you saw all the Da Vinci pictures and, and, and all the disciples are walking around with plates on their heads. I mean, halos, but you know what I'm saying. And they're all like unnaturally posed and they're all, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke. And, and none of it looks like things you can relate to. I mean, we tell these stories to, to young people like Jesus is walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he says, come, follow me. And they all dropped their nets and followed him. And that doesn't sound like anything they can identify with. We, we've got to be able to put these people out of the artwork and on the earth. And what archaeology does is tells the story in stone so that you can see what part of the room is more worn what did they do with these implements? And we want to use that. So here's what I want to do. In two steps, I want to tell the story of Jesus. The first part, I'd like to just detail the story itself as it is in the Gospels. There is no way to make that short and simple. The fact is, God's big on content. There's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. God's a content God. So we're going to tell the story, but we're going to wait it with the stories as it flows. The second thing we want to do is we want to set the stage for the ministry of Jesus. I spend my time when COVID isn't around and we can live normally standing on different places and saying, how does standing on this spot help you understand these verses better? And I do it in a whole variety of countries, but the point is always the same. The place has something to do with what you should understand about the narrative. Now, we're going to have to make an admission as Christians. Uh, we don't really have a story of Jesus. What we have are what the uh, early church called the four evangelists. We call them the four gospels, but the early church called them the four evangelists, like four evangelistic tracts when people would read all the way through 24 chapters in a tract. And, and what they were doing was each giving their own perspective on what as the Spirit of God led them to write, happened in the life of Jesus. And the first three of them gave so much the same story or same view, Matthew, Mark, and Luke ended up being called synoptic or same view gospels. John comes along later, and he's got a little different perspective. But when we take a look at these, each one is written to their own audience. So let's stop for a minute, and let's just say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
are mostly, well, Matthew, by the way, is cyclical, and Mark is cyclical. That means they go to cycles of churches, and they get moved around, and it's kind of like when we share magazines with each other. But Luke is written as a letter to an individual, and that letter gets picked up and married together with Matthew and Mark and shared in the church. And what I want you to see is something about each of these Gospels as we have them. So let's talk for a minute about Matthew. I'm going to get to the story, but you've got to know who's writing the story so you get a sense of what they're all about, right? Matthew's one of the twelve. There's no verse that connects him directly to Levi, but from church history, we understand Matthew was Levi, the tax collector from Capernaum. And it looks like in Mark 2 and, and Luke 5, that tax collecting job is what put him in Capernaum because there's a tax station nearby, and Jesus picked him up. Now, the thing about Matthew is he's obsessed with the words of Jesus. In fact, if you have a red-letter edition of the New Testament, there's more red in Matthew than any other gospel. And so the point is, he's all about what did Jesus say? What are the words of Jesus? Follow along with me. Those of you who are very conversant in this gospel and know it, you know that there's at least probably five or six major sermons in Matthew's gospel. And the first one, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are about the character traits and the choices and the priorities of becoming a disciple. Now, he gave that on the side of the mountain, so we call it the Sermon on the... See, we have really high resounding titles for these things, but it was given on a mountain on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Fast forward. Go a little bit into Matthew and you get to Matthew 10. And now he's got his original 12 disciples. In fact, he's got as many as 70 at one time that he's sending out, but a special circle of 12. And, and he's about to send the boys out to the hillsides, to all the, the villages, and they're going off, but they're going without him. So Matthew 10, he gives instructions on the sermon of a true witness. How to pull off taking the message of Jesus to a new place. Fast forward. Matthew 13, there's a sermon that has all of these very strange sayings. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto. You remember this? It's a series of parables on the meaning of success. The problem is his family's upset with him. The number of chariots in the parking lot is going down, and the disciples are all befuddled trying to figure out what's wrong. And he says, yeah, you're not understanding what I'm doing. See, you're thinking that I'm trying to grow a popular movement while I'm writing the New Testament. I got other things going on here. And Matthew 13 gives that background. Fast forward. The disciples are, you're going to be shocked. Hold your seat for a minute. The, the disciples aren't getting along. Can you imagine? People who love Jesus not getting along. Can you imagine? And so he gives a sermon on the meaning of forgiveness. How often should I forgive my brother? Who knows the answer? If you give me the math problem, you missed the sermon. 70 times 7. What are you doing, calculating? 
More times than you can count. How about we go with that, all right? Now, let's fast forward then. It's coming now in the Passion Week. It's toward the end of Jesus' life. He's about to be taken away from the disciples. He's going to be crucified. Then he's going to come back, teach, and then be taken up to heaven. And he goes up to the Mount of Olives. And on his way, he's come out of the temple in Matthew 23. And I don't want to steal from a comedian, but you could be a Pharisee if you're like one of these. And he starts telling you what Pharisees are like in 23. And he goes over to, Mount, to the Mount of Olives and he sits down and they come to him and they say, look, you've been talking about some bad stuff. When is the end going to come? Because it's on the Mount of Olives and technically it's on Olivet, which is the middle part of the Mount of Olives, we intelligently call it the Olivet Discourse. What it is, is the shocking words of Jesus of how this thing all wraps up in the human program. And that's in Matthew 23, 24, 25, and really the sermons in 24 and 25. Now, 10 miracles in Matthew, five major sermons, and he is obsessed with the words of Jesus. So let me say it this way. If you want to know where Jesus said something, look in Matthew. You're more likely to find it there than anywhere else, right? Now... John Mark is the author of the second of the, of the gospel series. John Mark is the son of Mary of Jerusalem, and we think that hers was the house in Acts 12 where they were meeting in the early church in Jerusalem. Now, this is that house you might remember. Peter gets miraculously released from prison and then left standing outside the door. Uh, you remember the story. At any rate, that's probably John Mark's house. By birth, he's a Cypriot. And he's a cousin, perhaps, or nephew of Barnabas. And John Mark is a, a guy who has a troubled past. He sometimes doesn't stick by the stuff. And then God gets a hold of his heart, uses him, and he actually is there pr uh, pronouncing the story of Jesus. What's Mark about? Well, just like Matthew was all about the words of Jesus, Mark is all about the works of Jesus. In Mark's gospel, Jesus isn't even born. He hits the ground running. Like, it's, it's all about ministry, 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 do, do, do. And, and honestly, you, you open up Mark, and the first eight chapters leading to the climax of the book are all about, watch the words, power over. He has power over the sea. He has power over the, the medicinal problems, and he heals people. He has, uh, he has power over demons. He has power over... He has, the first half of the book is really, if Jesus were running for Messiah, does he have the credentials? No, that's terrible, but you know what I'm saying, okay? So the point is, he gets them in Mark chapter 8, to the place of the final exam, and the disciples are up at Caesarea Philippi, in the, way up in the north of Israel, and he asks the two questions that are the final exam for disciples. Who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist reheaded. Others say maybe you're Elijah back from your chariot ride. It was a long ride, you know. Who do you say that I am? Now, can I just say something? Guys, you can get every quiz question wrong on every quiz you ever take in life. You won't go very far academically, but don't get this one wrong. Who is Jesus? Because who is Jesus has eternal consequences. And so, Peter, remember Peter? 
the guy who only opens his mouth to change feet, you got to love him. He gets up and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, I counted in the Gospels, and Peter always has his hand up first. Ooh, I know, and usually he doesn't. Did you have somebody in class that was like that? Okay, well, here's the thing about Peter. He gets the right answer there. And Jesus leans over and says, yeah, you didn't think that one up, big guy. My father whispered that one in your ear. The one time the guy gets the right answer and you took it away. But Mark's gospel, from the moment the declaration of Jesus is made, Jesus sets his face toward the cross. And the second half of the book is a compelling journey of Jesus doing a series of works that grind from all the way in the north part of the Galilee and the Golan all the way down to the Jordan River and the shores of the Jordan and then up into Ephraim and finally into Jerusalem. And it's all about the works of Jesus. Now, if you've got Matthew and you've got the words of Jesus and you've got Mark, and you've got the works of Jesus, what do you need Luke for? Well, Luke is, we think, the doctor from Colossians chapter 4, who's the beloved physician, and he's a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And when Luke comes onto the scene, he writes a letter to a guy by the name of Theophilus. We'll just shorten it to Theo, because it's easier. And he says, Theo, there's other people who wrote the words of Jesus, <clears throat> Matthew. There's other people who wrote the works of Jesus, <clears throat> Mark. I'm going to set them in order. The words and works I'm going to put in chronological order. Now, we think he's writing to the lawyer for Paul, but that's another story. The important thing is he's organizing what was going on in the life of Jesus, Jesus and putting it in order. So if you want to know where, where Jesus said something, look in Matthew. If you want to know where he did it, look in Mark. If you want to know where it went before and after what, look in Luke. See, because Matthew tells stories the way my wife does, by how she felt at the time, not the chronological order. And I love her. She's wonderful. She tells great stories, better stories than I can tell, but you can't find a chronology in it. You don't know if the guy was born yet, already graduated school, or maybe he's been dead for a long time. You're not going to know that till after the story. The point is that Luke then is obsessed with order. So we're going to look a little bit later. Our second session tonight is all about Luke's order of telling the story. I'll let that one, you just stick a pin in that one, we'll come back to it. Now we've got John's gospel. Now he comes later. John is, is coming along and he's writing this as a pastor of a church in Ephesus. And what that meant was he was the guy that led the Bible study over about 10 other guys who each one of them had a Bible study in their Roman villa somewhere spread around the city and that's the church at Ephesus. Does that make sense? So it's like home Bible studies. Wow, they're new. No, they're first century, okay? We're just going boldly backwards. The point is that, that John is the one who's leading the entire study, and he's got a problem because the audience now is not just the Jewish audience. It's mostly a non-Jewish audience. Now, that's not bothering you, but it should. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn you into two audiences tonight. And based on Ephesus, I'm going to make this group right here and this group right here, and all you guys up there, all of you together, your pig-eating pagans that found Jesus. 
You are people who were, used to be Gentiles, but now are people of the way. They're going to call you Christians. Now, you're feeling left out, I know. So this group over here, we're going to call you kosher kids. You're all on the kosher deli bowling team, the entire group over here. And what you are are people who grew up Jewish, who saw Jesus as the completing Messiah of the promises given prior to that by the Hebrew prophets. Now, you're all in the same church, but the problem is we can't even pull off a church breakfast because they're bringing bacon. And you're over here going, we don't touch anybody who touches anybody, who bumped into anybody, who met anybody, who talked lovingly to anybody, who eats pig. So we have a problem. There's another bigger problem that's not dietary. And that problem is that John has to face the fact that he was, a, he was the youngest of the disciples. He's been there with the whole thing. And he's got a bit of a temper, you know, sons of thunder and such. The thing about John is that he decides that he understands his audience. See, the people that used to be pig-eating pagans that now know Jesus... They grew up in a school that says a man is known by the philosophy that falls from his lips. The Greeks believed that if, if you were really articulate, you were really smart. Apparently, running for Congress is based on some of the same principles today. But if you get to know somebody who's articulate, can I just say some of the most articulate mouths are attached to some of the smallest minds in our society, and so we just need to question whether or not the Greeks were just wrong, okay? But here's the thing, all right? So what they want to know about Jesus and what John is going to write about Jesus are seven I am sayings. Because what they want to know is what did Jesus claim to be? So Jesus in his story is going to speak and John says, look, a lot of other stuff Jesus really did that I'm not writing in this book. Because honestly, my book won't hold it. In, in fact, libraries won't hold it. But, but these things that I've selected, I've written that you might believe, and in believing them, have life. So he said, you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I'm what you need. In the biblical period, bread was the symbol of all that we need. So give us this day our daily bread was give us this day our daily needs. The part of bread will be played by the mortgage payment. You, you understand what I'm saying? And so John 6, 35, he says, I'm what you need. And in John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. This is a great story. You remember this? Jesus is doodling on the floor in the temple, pushing dirt around. And it's bugging people because he's having a good time and he's sitting there and we don't know what he's writing. There's whole commentaries on what he wrote. We don't know what he wrote. But he's writing something and they bring in this lady and thump, they throw her down. She was caught in adultery. And Jesus keeps writing. Master, she was caught in adultery. And he looks up and he says to them, let him who is, what? Without sin, cast the what? First stone. Now, the people in the room all know Deuteronomy 19. They all understand how this works. The law provided that the person who was wounded through the first rock in a stoning, 
So if convicted of stoning to death, the person would throw a rock, and if they really want you to suffer, they throw a pebble. Dink! So you feel all the subsequent rocks. And if they don't want you to suffer, they hit you hard the first time you're out cold, they stone you till you're dead, you never knew the difference. So he says, if she's committing adultery, the wounded party's her husband, where's he? And by the way, is he also guilty? He wasn't saying, you know, I used to believe in this law that I gave at Sinai, but I don't believe in that anymore because I'm the Jesus nice guy of the New Testament. What he says is this, I believe in the law that I gave, but you're trying to pull something over on me. And either both people are brought in or nobody's dying today. And then he said it this way, by the way, I'm the light of the world. See, I see through the darkness. I know what you're doing. I'm the light of the world. Oh, go down just a couple more chapters. He's in a, he's in a jam in Jerusalem because, you know, Jesus has a, a nagging way of healing people on the wrong day of the week. And, you know, honestly, what's, what's amazing about it is Jesus will come up and find a guy who is born blind. He'll, he'll heal him. They'll determine it was the Sabbath. And people who never paid that guy any mind up to that time in his life suddenly discovered him, and he's a problem. See, that's how religion works. It's not a problem until it's offensive to one of our rules. And so Jesus looks at this guy who's really been treated badly, and he says, not for nothing, but I'm the door of the sheep. I'm here to let people in, and I'm here letting you, drawing you. I'm not trying to find a way to disenfranchise you. See, I'm the door of the sheep. A little bit later in the story, he says, not only am I the door, I'm the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. Now, that might sound funny to you, but I was out with Arabs out in the desert, and I was taking a course, actually, on shepherding. And we were out there, and the guys at night would bring the sheep into the sheepfold, and the sheepfold is just nothing more than an open front cave, and they'd stack up a bunch of rocks around the front and put thorny poterium on the outside that's kind of like a thorns, that they, natural barbed wire. And what they were do doing was keeping the foxes and rats out because that messes with the sheep at night, and then the sheep get up, and, and then you don't get any sleep, okay? So they built the rocks up, they put the poterium on it, and then they left a gap. And I remember as a student asking, wait a minute, where's the door? And the shepherd said, well, I'm the door. And he lays in it. So he's both the good shepherd and the door, and it makes perfect sense to a person who's living in that time and place. Jesus was up in the Galilee and then came down to Perea, and he got word that his buddy Lazarus had died. He delayed coming, and when he finally got there, he raised Lazarus in Bethany. And that's when he said in John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. There's a problem even today for believers because we separate between the benefits of Jesus and Jesus himself. People come walking into a church ostensibly to get Jesus, but what they really want is their plumbing fixed. Their problem is they want their, their bills paid or their relationship healed. And thank God he's patient enough to take us from where we are to, to not only show us that, he'll, yeah, he'll fix the plumbing, he'll rip it all out and put in new, but that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who gives life to the dead. A little bit later in the upper room, 
The boys are wondering about Jesus and where he's going, and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life in John 14, 6. You want to get there? I'm it. I'm the way to God. And then walking out down to the uh, Kidron Valley after the Last Supper is the last of the seven IMs. He probably went by a vine with some straggly branches that was hanging over a stone wall on his way down to the valley. And he said, guys, take a look at this. See the vine? See the branches? I'm the vine. You're the branches. And not for nothing, but the branches don't live unless they're attached to the vine. You want life? It comes through me to you. Without me, you can run a great program. Now, without me, you can do nothing. So, seven IMs. So, you're all feeling better now because you know who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who sustains your needs. Jesus is the one who's truth. Jesus is the one who, who's light. Jesus is the one who exchanges religion for righteousness. Jesus is the one who's, who's there for his followers. Jesus is the one who will give life to those who believe. Jesus is the one who creates the path. So, the Greeks are all happy former pig-eating pagans, you can all smile now. They're not happy. Because, you know, Jews are different than Gentiles. Look at them. They're not happy. You can see it right now. It, Jews don't care what you say. They care what you do. They're interested in, okay, I'm glad he said a lot of stuff. Very nice, very nice, but what did he do? And so from John 2, he will, he will turn water into wine because Jesus takes something ordinary and makes it extraordinary at that wedding. By the way, after that, he got invited to so many parties, it was unbelievable. And then Jesus is long distance. He's running around on the Cana Ridge, and, uh, and the mayor of Capernaum, the Basilicos, the official there, uh, finds out that his child is dying, and he comes up the hill eight hours to see Jesus. One o'clock in the afternoon, he's talking to Jesus. Jesus says, go your way, John 4, 46 to 54. Go your way. Your child is fine. And this guy believes Jesus and takes the rest of the day off. He doesn't go down the hill till the next day when his servants come and say, you're not going to believe what happened. He said, when did it happen? Yesterday at 1 o'clock. And he knew it was in that time that Jesus had said it. The remarkable faith of the guy was he got up before dawn to go save the life of his kid. That's normal. That's what a parent would do. But after being told his child was well, I'd have been running down that hill to find out if what Jesus said was true. And he simply took the word of Jesus and took the rest of the day off. Did a little shopping. The antiquing in Cana is very good. Comes to Jerusalem, John chapter 5, and comes upon a man who's been lying there. Uh, it happens to be another one of those Sabbath healings. And uh, the man says, you know, I've been here 38 years. You could kind of tell he had moved into the place. It was a public environment. People walked around him for a whole generation. Nobody saw him. Jesus told him, get up, pick up your stuff, take responsibility and walk. And as soon as he did, they said, it's Sabbath, he's holding something. 38 years you didn't notice the guy, and now he's in your way theologically. 
when he spoke to Jesus, he said, Jesus, I don't have anybody to help me. We would think his problem was being lame. He thought his problem was being alone. And there's a lot of people that have physical maladies, but that's not their biggest problem. Jesus goes up to the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> the boys are hungry and not paying attention. I know this because when Jesus says, does anybody have any food, they identify which lunchbox has exactly how many fish and how many loaves, which tells you they've been nosing around people's lunchboxes, not listening to the sermon. <laughs> At any rate, Jesus takes uh, loaves and fishes and he breaks them, and he reminds us that his resources are inexhaustible. <laughs> Can we not stop just for a minute and acknowledge it's not the government that has inexhaustible resources. It's not you and I. I mean, how many of you are tired tonight? We exhaust fairly easily, but we serve a Savior who never slumbers nor sleeps. He does not get too tired to deal with your troubles. So here's the thing. The boys get out on the boat. They head out to the Sea of Galilee. There's a terrible storm there. Jesus comes walking on the lake up to them. Can, can I just tell you that I love your pastors. Your staff is great. But if we're out on the Sea of Galilee and Pastor Kip comes walking up on the sea and says, Fear not, it is I. I'm going to be afraid, okay? I'm thinking this is not normal. Jesus settles down the sea because Jesus' strength is unlimited. It's interesting because he's going to come back to Jerusalem in John 9. He's going to find a man who was, who was born blind and he's going to spit on some clay and stick the clay in his eyes. And then he's going to tell him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, yeah, he's standing there with mud dripping down his face. Of course he's going to go wash. And he goes and does that and he's able to see. And, and in the story, even the man's parents diss the man because they're afraid because yeah he got healed but it happened to have been sabbath and you know you don't heal on the wrong day of the week god should work six days in healing on the seventh day he should rest so in the end this man finds out that he sees with his eyes but then learns to see the people in his life with his heart and he can't believe what he sees by the way, the one who was blind in the story physically went out seeing and said that Jesus was his Lord. But the people that went in seeing, they left blind because they didn't see the Jesus standing in front of them. What's interesting to me is that at the raising of Lazarus, the last of these seven I do miracles, Jesus says, Lazarus! Come forth! Now, that's a good thing, because if he'd have just said, come forth, we'd have had bodies coming from everywhere. The place would have been just filthy with bodies coming out of the ground. Guys, when Jesus speaks, he speaks precisely, he speaks carefully, he knows what it is he's doing. And can I just say that everyone else in the cemetery that day remained dead. That in no way minimized the size of the miracle. See, we don't have to dress up what God said and make it more cool. We're not a PR firm trying to make Jesus more relevant. The author of life is always relevant. The, the king of heaven is always relevant. And he's also incredibly careful. So there you have it. We've got now the words of Jesus. And what gospel would that be in? 
and the works of Jesus, what gospel would that be in? And the chronology of Jesus, what gospel would that be in? Now, when you get to John, more than half of that Johannine narrative actually takes place in Jerusalem. I want you to be careful of a word in John every time you see it. The Jews. What Jews? They're all Jews. Jesus is Jewish. The guys who are with him are Jewish. The point is that in John, he's writing later, and he's writing to a split audience, and he's trying to tell you what Jesus said and what Jesus did, and he wants you to believe, but he understands that Jesus was incredibly popular in the Galilee in the north, but when he came down to Temple U at Jerusalem and all the alumni there that came from the seminary, he was not popular with the profs. So in the Judea, Yehudoi can be Judeans or Jews. You should say Judeans. In Judea, he's always in trouble. So John's gospel adds to the words, works, and chronology one other word, conflict. And every time I mentioned Jesus' healing, I told you, by the way, it was the wrong day of the week, and now he's in a fight. It's almost like the healings were incidental to the theological argument because that's what they were in John's gospel. John writes to answer one question. If Jesus is so popular, how come they killed him? And he says, because there was a constant conflict. You know what the problem is? Jesus never had a lot of respect for religion. Religion is man's attempt to reach up and touch God. Jesus came so that he could do for us what we could not do so that we could have a relationship with God not based on our performance, but based on his. And as a result, they didn't like him very much. Now, it's 7.15. That gives me 15 minutes to talk about this next segment, which is, I'm just going to show you a picture of Bethlehem. This is the outside of the Nativity Church. Luke's gospel is where I'd like to spend the remainder of our night. A little bit of time, take a break, we'll come back in a little bit more time, and we're going to do only the gospel of Luke. Why? Because he put it in order, and I need an order for it. Let's break the gospel of Luke into its simplest components. If you'll let me, the first component is what's called the pre-ministry narrative of Jesus. Now, this is so intelligent. Everything before his ministry is called pre-ministry, okay? Now, in Luke's gospel, the first part then of the ministry is Luke chapters 1, 2, and then the genealogy in 3. We're going to call that the pre-ministry narrative of Jesus. Then we're going to pick up in chapters 4 through 9, and that's what we're going to do most of tonight, in chapters 4 through 9, the popular ministry of Jesus. So there's pre-ministry. It's a whole bunch of stories about his birth and his childhood. Then there's stories about how he became popular. Jesus was a rising star in Galilee. I'm quite sure that his rabbi from Nazareth, when he was popular, was saying, yes, I taught him everything he knows. He came up in my class. He was a brilliant student. And then the tide turned against him. I don't know what happened. He didn't hear what I said. But, but here's what I know. I know that in chapters 4 through 9, you're going to be surprised at how organized the popular ministry of Jesus really was. Then we're going to come back, Lord willing, on Friday. And we're going to do the last part, which is the parting ministry of Jesus. And the parting ministry is a run-up to the cross in the last six months of his ministry in a place called Perea. Luke spends a lot of time there, Luke 10 through 19. 
And then in 20 to 24, the Passion Week. Now, I don't want this to be some kind of hygienic uh, class. I want you to know something before we go any further. This story changes people. What Jesus did transforms us. The cross makes it possible for us to have a relationship with the living God. You know that. Christians, when they become Christians, know that. But what's the rest for? Because we don't follow just our salvation. We follow our Savior. I want you to know more than the effect of the cross, I want you to know the person that gave you the gift. And so when you go back to the beginning of the story, the story starts with some angelic visitors in Nazareth and then angelic visitors in Bethlehem. Here's what's interesting. The first two chapters of Matthew are dedicated to the point of view of Joseph. What happened to Joseph in those early stories? And can I just tell you, if you were Joe's best friend, you, you would have given him advice like this. You'd have said to him, look, that girl comes back and tells you she's pregnant, you dump her like a hot potato, buddy. And you would have been absolutely wrong, but understandably wrong. You can't study Matthew 1 and 2 and Joseph's life without understanding that God intentionally took him into a period of time where he felt betrayed in order for God to speak into his life. Now stop there for a minute and think about that. Because God has the right to reposition my life anywhere he wants so that I can hear from him and I can speak for him. And Joe learned it the hard way. The problem with Joe was he could never sleep because he kept having dreams. God was redirecting him all the time with the dreams already. I'm getting no sleep. But that's Matthew 1 and 2. Mark, I told you, skips the entire pre-ministry. Jesus shows up 30 years old right from the get, and he's out there getting baptized by John in the Jordan, and that's Mark chapter 1. But Luke 1 and 2 sensitively takes the narrative and centers on a house that's underneath this church. Now, we don't know if it's the right house. I frankly think when Helena came here, they gave her a cheap piece of real estate. This is the very place where Jesus, he was born. Because it, was, it made sense to give her cheap real estate. She's, you know, government. She'll pay a high price either way. But the bottom line before this thing is built is there's a little tiny three-room cave-style home underneath that building. I take people down to it and look at it sensitively, Luke 1 and 2 wraps around something startling. I want you to think about it. Have you ever thought there are seven stories of angelic messages from heaven that make up the pre-ministry? Starts with Zach and Liz. Remember them? Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zach has to represent the prayers of the people. So he's standing there mixing incense, but he doesn't believe God ever hears his prayers because he's been begging God for a son for his entire generation, and God never says yes to me. And the lot falls on him to represent the prayers of Israel, and he walks in with the incense, and he's mixing it going, oh, great, nobody's prayer is going to get heard this year. Up comes Gabe, the angel. And Gabriel looks at him and says, your prayers have been heard. Oh, really? Tell me about that. Because I've been living with a woman who's been sobbing herself to sleep for a generation waiting for a son that never showed up in her womb. 
Gabriel said, okay, that's enough. You stop talking. And he's never allowed to pronounce anything until the son is born. Meanwhile, back in Ankarim, Elizabeth, when she hears about this, has incredible faith. Who's, what's her story? She's been going to the well every day, surrounded by women who are laughing and joying about their children, and she doesn't have any, and she feels incomplete, and she's begged God, and there's nothing else she can do. See, the story of Jesus begins with people who aren't happy, fulfilled, and complete, and God put them in a situation that was tough because he had a plan for them. What does that tell you about today? Right now, today might not be the day where everything's going right, but God may be repositioned. Does God have the right to break your right leg to put you in an ER because he's got a nurse that needs Jesus? See, you know what happened in this room just now? Everybody theologically said amen, and then practically said, I hope not. <laughs> Ask Job, does God have the right to reposition my life? Well, Liz found out that he does because she, did, she wanted a baby. God wanted a prophet because God's plan for you is bigger than your plan for you. It wasn't only that, though. You know, you got Zacharias and Elizabeth, but they're not the only people. Mary gets a message from Gabriel. Now, Mary isn't as jaded as Zacharias. Why? She's young. So he says, you're going to have a baby. She says, I got a mechanical problem with this, but, you know, if you can get me past that, I'm in. He explains there's nothing impossible with God. I see your point. Joseph, we already talked about him. He's, he's staying up nights, but God is speaking in his dreams. Then, then the angels will come, and the heavenly hosts are there. Ladies and gentlemen, the heavenly hosts are not at Bethlehem on Christmas Eve so that they can sing in the choir or show up on the Hallmark card. They're guarding the baby. Tzvaot is army. They are heaven's army. Yes, they sing. Okay, they're, they've got more than one talent. But they're there as an army. And so Jesus is born and they're guarding over it and saying the Savior has come and telling the shepherds. Jesus, when he's going to be presented to the temple, you remember the, the story of Simeon? He's been there his whole life, and God said, you, you need to keep showing up every day, buddy, because you can't retire until you hold Messiah, until you see this boy. And when you do, then you can die. And Simeon's been coming day after day waiting for this event. I got to tell you, what about Anna? Seven years she's married. Her husband dies. Most people go get remarried and go have kids. She wanted to have kids. She wanted to have a future. She had a plan. That's not what God's plan was. He said, I want you to go to the temple, and I want you to stay there because I got something for you to do. Cut to when she's 83. She's coming out to the outside of the temple, and here comes the baby. She wanted to hold her baby. She held God's baby and could pronounce that this was Messiah. The pre-ministry narrative is all about these announcements that the one that the prophets have promised for hundreds of years is here. Isaiah 700 years ago told us he'd be here. He's here, and you can know that this is the one. 
Bethlehem is the place. God is on the move. And in case you missed it, there's an entire angelic choir to back up the whole thing and let you know it's really happening now. Jesus then drops off the scene. You don't really see much about what happens after the nativity scene. Every year we celebrate this. And then he drops off and shows back up at 30. In an internet age, that's weird. Because we're looking up, you know, the MySpace of our congressmen when they were in eighth grade. But the thing is, Jesus is coming to do a priestly work. And priests don't start their work until around 30. And all the way back in Jewish tradition, they didn't keep records of the priest until he was 30 years of age. Jesus is going to begin at his baptism by John in the Jordan River. And right after our break, we're going to come back and pick up the popular ministry of Jesus, which most scholars say begin at his baptism. Let's take a five-minute break and try to keep it under 10. I fall apart You're the one That guides my heart Lord, I need you Oh, I need you
All right, if you could find your seats, we'll get started again. I do have uh, some more packets of notes. Uh, if you do not have notes, I'm just going to go up and down the aisles uh, as Randy gets started again. And if you don't have notes, raise your hand and I will give you a set. I hope you have notes. You got lots of notes. Okay. All right. Well, we have dived into the story and we're going to continue. All right. Now, you should be thinking then that the pre-ministry narrative is actually the seven figures, including Joseph and Mary, Elizabeth and Zacharias, including the shepherds, including Anna and Simeon. Those seven are the messages that Messiah has come. The promised one of Malachi is now here. It's not something we think about a lot, but it's worth remembering. The enemy is not all-knowing and all-seeing. And frankly, Joseph managed to move Jesus to Egypt and then to Nazareth, and the demonic world lost track. I think that sounds funny, but I think it's true. I think it's when Jesus stood in the Jordan and the Spirit of God came down and settled on him and God said from heaven, Here he is, my son! And the enemy jumped on, and the next story is the temptation. So what I want you to see is that Jesus starts off as a kid from Nazareth. This is a home on the edge of Nazareth. Um, a little fixer-upper, I'll admit. But nevertheless, um, it's a home that was actually a replica of a home from the New Testament period. Jesus grows up in a home, and by the way, what we know of Nazareth has changed entirely within the past five years. Uh, we used to know it as a very poor place, and now we found two Roman villas in downtown Nazareth, and it's rewriting all the stories, okay? What we do know is that Nazareth didn't have a water aqueduct, so all the women got up an hour before sunrise, put the pots on their head, walked up the hill, and the good news is they came down with the pots full. The women always went up an hour before sunrise, an hour, uh, an hour after sunrise, and an hour before sunset, I should say. They always do it in the light. An hour after sunrise, an hour before sundown, and they always go together, which is my theory on why, you know, ladies go to the bathroom together now, but I don't know if that's true. Anyway, the point is that sociologically, uh, they always got their water together. Guys, 1950, they put in a water system in Nazareth, and it ruined the lives of most of the women that lived there because now they don't go out together. And they don't have like an Arab Oprah, so they don't have any, you know, and you get a car and you get a car. They don't have any of that. So they all of a sudden found themselves isolated, and this generation of young people are growing up with moms who saw the shock of the change sociologically. But if you go to chapter 4 of Luke, I'm going to just keep walking us through Luke. In chapter 4, it opens up with Satan who is pummeling Jesus. Now, here's the issue. How will you make yourself known? Will you throw yourself off the temple and land really well? How do you want to be made known? And Jesus answered him with the word and said, I'm going to do what my father says to do, and I'm not doing what you want me to do. So Satan got the message that after his baptism, he descended on him, took his punch, didn't win, but Satan never throws only one punch. 
So he brought in the B team. And Jesus is in Nazareth, and it's the time of the uh, Sabbath meeting. He goes to the synagogue, and he walks into the local synagogue, which means there's a minion. There's at least 10 leaders of families in the Nazareth synagogue. He walks in. He takes the Eitzheim, the staves that, ha that have the scroll, and he flips over to where he wants to read. Now, this is not done. You read the next reading. It's like a lectionary. You don't choose. You read the next reading. Jesus flips over to a place, and he goes, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's called me to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted and set the prisoner free. And today, the very things you're reading about right here are happening in your midst. And they said, great. What gracious words proceed out of his mouth. Now, while you're here, can you do a couple of things for us? He said, now, you would like me to do things for you as part of my clan. And I get it. Because I'm a good guy. I grew up here. I know what the rules are. But, you know, even Elijah didn't do everything in his own hometown. He did stuff outside. You got to understand, I can't follow my father and take my cues from my family. And the clan says, all right, that's it. This rebellious snot-nosed kid, we're taking him out to the hill. We're going to throw him in a hole, and we're going to stone him till he's dead. And he walks right through the crowd. See, the first throw of the punch was Satan direct. When he, the enemy can't get at you directly, he'll go through the people in your life to come at you. And all, I pastored three churches. I never had any of my children act up on any day of the week that wasn't Saturday. Because if it's Saturday night, that's when somebody's going to run away or do something stupid. Because we've got to do it on Saturday night. Here's the thing. Jesus then takes himself out of town. See, when they want to throw stones at you or throw you off the brow of a hill, this is a good time to change your preaching assignment. So he goes to Capernaum, and he meets happy faces. Now, when he gets into Capernaum, you have to understand what's going on. He goes into the synagogue in Capernaum, and demons come out and say, we know who you are. And here's the problem. Jesus says, you're not turning this into a circus. Shut up and get out. Now, what are they doing in synagogue? Demons love church. It's one of their favorite places to hang out. Because people who are actually here are coming with some, allow, uh, some sensitivity that they need something in life. And so this is the place where truth is dispensed, but also it's often diverted you may walk in, ready to receive something from God, and it's the person in the foyer who makes that crack comment that turns your heart so you can't hear. They don't know it, but they just got used. And you don't know it, but you just got beat. So Jesus rebukes them. It's interesting, epitomeo is the word for he rebukes the, the, the demon, and then later on it says that he goes back to Capernaum, back to the house, and when he gets back at the house, guess what happens? He finds that Peter's mother-in-law, who's been making the meals, is sick. But he doesn't heal her, he rebukes 
The sickness, which tells you it's not just that she was sick, it's that the enemy's throwing another punch. Because if he can't get at you directly, and he doesn't get at you when he's coming around you with the family, he'll then slow the ministry down with people that have problems that they can't explain, and all of a sudden the computers will go out. And you'll be sitting there going, what's going on? We got an enemy. He's not rolling over. So here's the truth. Just about that time in chapter 5, the Pharisees come on the scene. This is our happy group of Pharisees here on the screen. And he heals a leper. And after he healed the leper, some guys, some very enterprising guys, you got to like these guys, they really like their buddy, but they can't get near Jesus. So they put him on this beer, this little platform, and they take him up onto the roof, and they rip Peter's mother-in-law's roof off the house to lower him down inside the house. Now, the story I want to read is what Peter's mother-in-law said when she got home. We don't have that story, but the story we do have is down comes the guy. He's there, and Jesus looks at him and says, Oh, you, your sins are forgiven you. And then he's about to go away. Oh, 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 you want to be healed. Oh, okay. Get up. And the Pharisees are going, you can't tell him his sins are forgiven. You don't have a problem with me telling him to get up and I healed a body that you can't figure out how I healed, but you have a problem with me telling him his sins are forgiven? Which of these do you think is harder? To, to fix a foot or save a soul? Can I tell you the answer to that in the modern church? People can come in, and people can get saved week after week when the gospel is preached. But people get really excited if somebody grows a leg or a foot gets healed. Because we're so fixed on the physical that we miss that the physical world is the fleeting one. So the Pharisees are still mad. Jesus decides to take a dinner invitation with Levi or Matthew, and he's going and he's eating with uh, Matthew. And so the, as he's there, they come and they ask him, I see you're having a party here, Jesus. Here's my problem. Um, John fasted. You know, John really did religious things. Well, of course he fasted. He ate locusts. I mean, come on. <laughs> High price in the locust market, and he just fasted. The point is that John fasted, and you're sitting here having a good time, and Jesus said to him, you guys don't get it. This whole scenario is based on who I am. When the bridegroom is here, people celebrate. There'll be time for sadness later. I've already seen the end of the story. But right now, we're having a good time. Hey, guys, take a bromide, will you? And he gets back to it and tells them that you're not easily able to fit new wine and old wineskins without bursting the whole thing and making a mess. In chapter 6, the Pharisees are there, and Jesus is walking. Now, this time he's not in Capernaum. He's up in the Galilee, and the boys have been on a, a walk, and we don't really know what they were doing, but we do know they came upon a barley field. Now, I know if you read it in your text, it'll say they came upon corn, but the part of corn will be played by barley. Corn doesn't get discovered until the New World. That's a later thing. But it's a grain, and so when we translated it into English, we dropped corn in over barley. Anyway, the point is they're eating barley. Now, if you've ever walked through a barley field, if the barley's ready for harvest, you can just sort of put your hand on the stalk and pull it, 
and get it. And if you do it right, put your thumb underneath there, you can pull it out. It's not that I've ever stolen any barley or anything, but you could, you could get it and you get a nice handful and then it's kind of like a snack. You can walk along and eat it and that's what the boys are doing. And so that's obviously a reason to be absolutely religiously, theologically offended. So these boys are offended that Jesus is allowing his men to eat because it happens to be the Sabbath and a man comes up to him and his hand is all malformed and, and he heals the man's hand and chapter 6 verse 9 says, Jesus says, hey, is it unlawful for me to help somebody on Sabbath? What would you rather me do? See this son of Israel and send them away absolutely hurting and without hope? Would you rather me do that or can I fix it since it's broke? It's amazing because in the early part of the public ministry, what I just gave you were seven conflicts that happened one after another. They happened in chapters 4 through 6, 11. Seven conflicts, right, at one after the other. Guys, when we talk about the popular ministry of Jesus, we think, here came, here came Jesus, and you know, if Jesus walked into our room, the aura around him, everybody would go, ah. Oh. That's not the gospel. He walked in to these guys. What are you doing healing people on the wrong day of the week? How come you're eating like this? They're going to give him a hard time about everything from how his disciples wash their hands to what day he heals. Everything, everything in the beginning is conflict. Now, let me tell you why that's important to me. <laughs> I pastored three churches. Ministry in seminary looks like it's going to be this, I'm, Billy Graham, eat your heart out, I'm coming. I'm going to preach. People are going to be saved, and things are going to happen. Well, that's true, and I don't want to discourage any young person from going into ministry. Can I tell you, uh, the, the, the following of the call of God was the most exciting thing I could have done in my life. I haven't had a real job in decades. I'm having a great time. But, but you have to understand something. It's a lot of conflict. That doesn't get an amen anywhere in the room. Seriously? It's a lot of conflict because people can think up new ways to sin over and over and over. I know there's nothing new under the sun, but there's a lot of them I hadn't heard until I got into ministry. So this early part, Satan needed to hear it's not going to happen. Fortune, fame, power, pleasure. I'm not doing those. I'm doing the will of my father. The family needed to hear, you're not going to tell me how to do the ministry because I've got a father I have to follow. The demons had to hear, get out of my way and don't turn this into a circus. We got stuff to do here. The disciples needed to learn to listen and fruitfulness would come if they would just do. There's a little story tucked right in the middle that I skipped over on these conflicts. It was the moment with the disciples in the early ministry. You know how fun it would be to be a disciple of Jesus when, ev when the, man, everybody's excited to see you. You come to town and whoosh, people are down on you. It is the best thing ever. And you're like, I'm with Jesus. I'm, I'm with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. Jesus, tight with Jesus. 
In chapter 5, the Batesida boys had been out there because they worked for Zebedee and Sons Fishing Company Incorporated located at Batesida. And they were a great operation. But Peter had been out with the boys and they were fishing all night. It's hard on these guys because they're fishermen and they're following a guy who's a stone worker, a builder, Jesus. That's what his father taught him to do. But he seems to be better at fishing than they are. It's very annoying. And the point is that um, Peter has labored all night and caught nothing. Jesus shows up in the morning. Now, you have to understand, the Sea of Galilee, except for in the stormy time, is actually clear, okay? And so the nets can be seen in the water and the fish aren't stupid. So you fish at night. But the nets were made out of a kind of silken thread that would lose its tensile strength as it got wet. So every day you have to take the nets out, hang them, dry them, and mend them to allow them to get back together because linen actually breaks down in the water if it's in there too long. So the linen nets are hanging out. The guys are working on them. Jesus walks up and says, Hey, guys, God, let's take the boat out. Peter looks up and says, look, we've been out all night, master, and we caught nothing. There's nothing going on out there. He says, hey, you want to see a catch? Watch this. Let's go out. Peter launches out in the boat. A crowd comes down to the beach because there's a crowd everywhere Jesus goes. Now, remember this. A rabbi always stands to, give, uh, to, to read the word. But when he sits down, he gives the proposition of what he's about to teach. And the problem is, every time Jesus sits down, a crowd gathers. Sometimes he just wanted to sit down, but other times they actually gather and he's going he's to give them a proposition of something. And, and when they do, Jesus gets to the boat. Now he's a little bit off the shore and he teaches. And people are moved and it's a wonderful moment. Peter doesn't care. He's been up all night. He's ready for a bed. Jesus said, uh, yeah, you got any other nets that are not hanging there? Yeah, I got two of these. Yeah, okay, throw them out here. And they come back, and now they're going to have to repair the boat because it's so overladen, they almost sink the boat. They got all kinds of fish. How annoying is it to go out with the stone worker who's a better fisherman than you are? But the boys need to hear, if you'll be faithful, I'll make you fruitful. Listen, faithfulness is my job. Fruitfulness is his job. My job isn't to figure out God, it's to follow him. And I'm annoyed with that, aren't you? Because I'd, I'd like to, Lord, lead me where I know what you're doing. And in all other areas, please don't. <laughs> so this is the early ministry. But you know what? Then there's a, a second part to this early ministry. And I love this part. This is the training of the boys. Now, this is what's going to wrap up our time. In four segments, he's going to train the boys between chapter 6 and chapter 9. So the middle of chapter 6 picks up Back at Capernaum. Now, I'm looking at Capernaum. The white building is a late 5th century synagogue. It's a, um, it's a sentimental and limestone synagogue that comes after the time of Jesus, but it's built over top of the outline from the synagogue that was there at the time of Jesus. It was excavated in the 1960s, and, and the guys who did it did a great job, and we know pretty much the footprint of what that synagogue was. The black rocks that are in front of it, the problem with Galilee is a lot of it's basalt, Basalt is volcanic rock. Well, the problem is volcanic rock has a lot of metals in it. You can fry an egg on a rock in the Galilee in the middle of the day. So this is why Jesus teaches in the morning. 
because if you can't sit on the rock, nobody listens. You, you understand? A anyway, so, so he'll teach early mornings and then release the crowds. Now, this is, this is actually the outlines of a house, an insula-style house. So imagine that Jesus comes into Capernaum, and he gives the sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount just outside. You can see that there's a berm or a hill outside in that direction. There's an even higher one in the other direction behind the camera here. And so he starts talking to the disciples. Now, what's the Sermon on the Mount about? Jesus' first big sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Also, Luke, uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 49, it comes down to this. You ready? You want to be my disciple? You can't be about you and be about me. You want to be my disciple? Ultimately, what I'm going to call on you to do is die. Die to self and let me live through you. We have all kinds of people that are making all kinds of messages out of what Jesus said, but that one's getting lost, guys. That one's getting lost. What he said is not just imitate me and follow me. Die to me that you might actually live as a reflection of how I would do it. And he says, in love, in mercy, in self-examination, stop running around trying to figure out what's wrong with everybody else. You got a log sticking out of your eye. And he says, why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say? Basic discipleship 101, guys. I call the plays, you do them. And the whole time you're doing it, keep watch, inspect. Don't run around trying to inspect each other until you deal with your own heart. That's what he says. And then he's, he's in Capernaum. And that synagogue has underneath of it the black synagogue that was the earlier one. And part of the money that was given to build that synagogue was given by a Roman of all things, a centurion. And that centurion had a slave that was very, very sick. And he sent word to Jesus and said, Master, I need you to heal my servant. Now, you don't have to come to my house. You don't have, you don't have to go anywhere. See, I'm in charge of a lot of men as a centurion. And I say something and it gets done. And I can see that you have spiritual authority and power. And if you speak, my slave will be healed. You don't have to trouble yourself. Just give the word. Do you know what faith is? Somebody out there is going the substance of things. Don't do that to me. Faith is God glasses. Faith is when I see the world through what the word of God says it is, not what my eyes would see if I did not have his revelatory truth. It's a biblical worldview. And that Man had a biblical worldview. He was able to say, Jesus, you're in charge, and if you say it, it'll get done. Well, wow, that's faith. You know what Jesus said? Wow, that's faith. So then he left. He took a walk out to the Galilee, and he was out by the, passing by some villages along the Jezreel Valley. As he and his disciples were walking along, he hears the wailing. Uh, you have to go to the Middle East and hear a funeral to understand. Once you hear that wail, you'll always know what it is. He went by and there was a, a widow who had lost her only son. That, by the way, is the biblical formula for destitution. 
no male heir lost my husband. And she's got a child lying there as they're taking the child all wrapped up to take him to the, to the grave. They're going to drop him into the ground. And on the way, she's wailing, and the people in the village are wailing, and Jesus is walking by, and he goes, I hear some wailing. He says, let's go over there. It's interesting how Jesus worked. Because a lot of us, when we see more work, we go that way. He saw hurting people and went toward them. And he walks over and he raises up this child and gives this child back to the mother. Now, that's name as it is today. It's a beautiful little place. Just the other side of that hill is a village called Shunem. And if you took the time to read 2 Kings chapter 4, you'd find out that Eli Elisha healed a child on the other side of that same hill, the hill of Moray, the hill of the teacher. And when he did that, the end of the story is he gave the child to the mother. So when Jesus did this in Nain, he gave the child to the mother on the other side of the place where Elisha had done the very same thing. And guess what they said in Judea? One greater than the prophets has come among us. Now that's a good thing and a bad thing. Word got back to Judea that somebody's running around healing people and raising people from the dead. And nobody remembers that person graduating from Temple U we got a problem now. So the boys dispatch someone. What's interesting to me is that he gives the call of the disciple in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 49, and follows it up with two healings of people who are way out on the edge, out on the fringe. And here's the point. If you're going to teach the priority of discipleship, here's the big point we have to get. Ministry is people. That's what it is. It's not buildings, budgets. It's not programs. Guys, listen to me for just a minute. I'm concerned because people think the church is okay because the offerings are still coming in. The body is broken. The body has been broken by COVID, and it is time for us to get the body back together. The metric isn't at the bank. It's in the evangelism and the fitting together of the joints and marrow and making the body work in a healthy way. And you cannot tell me it's happening yet. But I can tell you that I know your team and it's gonna. All eyes have to be on building the body back. I'm not talking about getting people in the seats on Sunday morning. I am talking about that, but that's not all I'm talking about. I'm talking about the body life. So he taught them that, and then in chapter 7, it's interesting, middle of chapter 7, after he's heard of in Judea, there start to be questions that come to Jesus. So this is kind of the FAQ section of Luke. Uh, the first uh, question is being asked by uh, the representatives of John the baptizer, who get up there, and in chapter 7, verses 18 to 35, they, they come to him, they say, Jesus, look, John's really tied up at the moment, but he sent us up here, quite literally, okay, he sent us up here to find out, are you the Messiah? Are you really the Lamb of God? He said that in the beginning. He needs to know now, because he's facing some real rough moments, are you the one? And Jesus didn't get out a chart and start going, well, yes, there's three persons in the Trinity. Can I just... What he said is, you go tell John what you see I've done. Why? John's Jewish. 
He doesn't want to hear words. He wants to know what happened. So he said, look, blind see, lame walk, lepers are healed, deaf hear, dead are raised, the poor have the gospel being preached to them. Just go tell John that. He'll know what to do next. And what's interesting is that's an honest set of questions. But the very next scene at the end of chapter 7 is a dishonest set of questions. Jesus is set up by some Pharisees. He comes in, he's invited over, he sits down, he's eating, and a woman comes over to wash his feet. But this particular woman has a backstory like we all don't. But you see, the problem with the Pharisees is that they often misunderstood adjective and noun. Listen to me very carefully. Jesus did not allow your sin to be your name. So she's not a sinner. She's a woman that sinned. This is, by the way, the premise of why I was at a youth conference, some of you know, Kids stood up and said, my brother's gay. I said, no, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. If you want to talk about his attraction, that's fine, but you cannot make his identity his sin or you violated what Jesus taught me to do as a disciple. Your desires are not your identity. And what happened in our time is we broke the family and children don't know who they are. It is that simple and that profound. And what you cannot do is allow them to adopt a behavior in violation of God's word as their identity. Because that's sin. The church will be guilty of sin if we accept the titles. So we can't. So here it is. The woman's washing his feet and the Pharisee's going, he has no idea who she really is. But Jesus isn't what he looks like. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And he's not set up. He turns to her. Didn't you know she's a sinner? Now, I want you to put yourself for a moment, I know this is hard, but through the eyeballs of Jesus. Sinner, 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 sinner. She's a sinner? Yeah, I got that. And the ones that are not would be where? See, because we get on our high horse of judgment. You know what I like? The beginning of chapter 8 tells another story about other women. I don't know if you know this, ladies, but the only people in the Gospels that ever financially supported Jesus, the only people in the Gospels that ever gave money to Jesus' ministry are women when they're named. I'm not saying no guys gave money. I'm saying they didn't get named. So, so the gospel writer puts in that um, he's got a support team. Mary, by the way, there's a lot of Miriams. They're all over the place. Uh, Joanna, Susanna. And what's interesting is Chusa, who is the servant of Herod Antipas, who is killer of John the baptizer, who's looking for Jesus. His household steward's wife is funding Jesus. Every time Herod Antipas sticks out his very big nose, if the statue is to be believed, every time he sticks out his big nose, what happens? Jesus is gone. How did he know? Well, you think maybe the steward's wife, who's been funding it, said, Jesus, 
now would be a good time to go over that hill. See, because these are traps, and Jesus isn't dumb about traps. There's an hour, and it's going to come. We'll see it Friday night, but that hour isn't yet. It's about that time that Jesus in chapter 8 tells a story. He tells the boys about the sower and the seed. You remember the story. You have to know something about the villages and the terraces that go to those villages. See, villages in the Middle East often ha are built on slopes, and the terraces are the way that you sort of compensate for the erosion. So you'll put a wall along the front, and you can see there are many, many walls. This is a very old terraced uh, hill in Judea. But I want you to imagine that you have, between that olive tree and that olive tree, up on that hill in the distance, that's your, that's your field. You have a garden next to your house, but that's your field. So your garden is where you grow your mints, or in this case, the part of mint will be played by tulips and daffodils. But nevertheless, you've got your, 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 your spices that are growing here, but your crops are out there on that hill. And Jesus said, a sower went out to his field outside there. And he started sowing, and as he was sowing, you have to remember something about those terraces. Now let's say they're as wide as this is deep. And he went out and he started sowing, and he's dropping seed everywhere. Some of that seed's going to come over here by the wall of the terrace. Can you see that there's walls against them? And on every one of those walls, there's lots of thorns that grow up. You never pull out the thorns or the walls fall down. The thorns are holding the wall together. They've been there for generations. Leave the thorns alone. The problem is some of the seed will fall out there by the thorns, and they'll get choked out. Others will fall here where there's very rich soil. But you know, right in the middle of this terrace, there's actually a pathway that goes through. You know why? Because in order for everybody to get to their field, they have to walk across your field. So there has to be a path where their sheep and goats and whatever can come right across the middle of the field. So that's packed down and hard. And when the, the seed hits that, you know the birds are so annoying, they come by and they take it away. And sometimes it, you throw it all the way back there, but the soil is very thin back there, and the sun comes up, and the roots don't go down very far, and it scorches the plant. So he says, listen, a sower went out to sow his seed, and the seed was good, and the sower was good. The problem was the soil. Did you know that Jesus spent more time talking about the hearer of the word than the preacher of it? I didn't get nothing from that sermon. Well, you probably didn't bring nothing to it. That's what Jesus would say. Because it's not all about what he was preaching, it's about what they chose to hear. My mom and dad raised 60, almost 70 children. I'm uh, one of the biologicals. There were six biologicals, four adopted. And then a stream of foster children. I am the third biological and I think the 14th child. Okay, They've been doing it their, They were doing it their whole life. And here's the thing. I found out from watching them over time that, that as I grew up, not every child came out the same. We ate the same breakfast cereal. We had one bathroom, 15 kids, one bathroom. We were brutal. So a new foster kid would come and we'd sit him down and we'd say, you have 705 to 710. If you are naked, if there is shampoo in your hair, we don't care, we come in. I think the first month those kids didn't shower. But here's the point. The point is, my father would say this. He would say, it is not what I say, it's what you choose to hear. That's a very Jesus thing to say. 
And then Jesus said, you know what? Nobody gets a lamp and lights the lamp, fills it with oil, lights the lamp, and then tries to hide the lamp. The lamp is going to show what's carefully hidden, and I tell you the truth, every hidden agenda's going to get seen. Stay tuned, boys. There's a lot coming your way. You know, one of the things Jesus had to do in order to train the disciples was to do the definition of faith and the definition of faithfulness, and that's the balance of our time together. In chapter 8, beginning in verse 19, he taught about the defining faith. There was a conflict with his family. His mother and brothers came, and they said, hey, your mother and brothers are way outside in the crowd, and they want to come, and they want to hear you. He says, listen, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? My family. If you'll follow me, then your family. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, Randy Smith doesn't leave his mama standing outside there. But he's making a point. Men, what defines our family is our faith. Because there's coming a day when you're going to find that people that have your blood will not be nearly as loyal as people that have your Jesus. And that day may not be too far away from us. And then he got out on the sea in chapter 8, and the disciples were out there. And So he's back now, he's at the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee can go from this to 8-foot waves in about 15 minutes. It's happened to me a number of times. It's a storm of wind. It's a specific phenomenon because it's sitting in a bowl here. What's interesting about this is last time that happened to me, by the way, I was on this boat. I went out with a group of the African Methodist Episcopal Choir. We got out there, and there was this windstorm, and it's blowing those little white deck chairs, and they're flipping into the sea, and people are hanging on, and somebody says, Lord, I'm going home. Lord, I'm going home. Lord, I'm going home. Lord, I'm going. It was the highlight of the tour when it was over. <laughs> now, here's the important thing. <laughs> the important thing is this. Jesus is in the boat with the boys. The storm kicks up. They do what we do when a storm kicks up. Plan A is panic. Plan B is pray. We're so funny because all there is left to do is to pray. Are we down to that? That's how we think. How silly, right? Jesus gets up and says, knock it off. You're all... And he says, how is it that you have no faith? How come you can't see me the way the word says I am? Guys, you need new glasses. He gets to the other side of the lake. This is an absolute Jewish nightmare. He gets to the other side of the lake, and when he gets there, there's a guy who's been dwelling in tombs. Now, you got to know that Jews don't shake hands with anybody who absolutely bumped into accidentally somebody who touched a tomb. Tomb is bad. You don't touch it. And so... He gets off the other side. There's a guy who comes out of a tomb, and he's bleeding of all things. Oh, this is lovely. And he's got chains, and he's been, like, howling and all kinds of things. And, you know, it's wonderful. You know the story. Jesus casts the demons into the swine. The only good part of the story is the pigs die. Yay. Anyway, the point is that in all of this, the guy in the background, the demoniac, after he's healed, says, can I go home with you? Peter's behind Jesus going, no, no. And he says, no, go tell your neighbors. Oh, praise God. They all got back in the boat. Now they're scared to death. The point is that Jesus calmed the storm on the sea to get them ready for the storm on the land. And he had power over both. 
And then he comes back, and he's not had even hardly had a break. And when he gets back, he finds out that they're getting off the the ship, and as they come onto the shore, this is the synagogue in Capernaum, and they're heading for the Jairus, the leader of the synagogue's house, and they're all excited to go because Jairus has a daughter that's dying. They're not excited because she's dying. They're excited because they're invited to the the biggest muckety-muck in town as far as the Jewish community is concerned. And so they're all walking like, I'm with Jesus, I'm with Jesus. And a woman comes up behind Jesus. Now, they don't see it because they're ahead of Jesus. Why? Because they're very excited about where they're going. And the woman comes up, and she grabs the edge of his garment and is healed. Now, what's interesting is he walks inside, and the people inside say she's dead. And he says she's not dead. And they start snickering. And they start mocking. You know, the lady outside, she just wanted to touch Jesus and get well. These people are going, ah, you, what are you talking about? You're not even a doctor. Jesus walks in and raises up the little girl. I love this scene. Raises up the girl and then says, give her something to eat, will you? And they're all standing there. See, the point is, he defined faith by saying, if you follow me, you're my family. He defined faith by saying, I have power over any of the elements, all of the demons, and any of the maladies you can bring to me. Stop acting like I'm on the ropes getting beat up. The 21st century church needs to hear this. God is not on the ropes and Satan pummeling him, and he's gone, don't hurt me. This is over when Jesus says, enough! He's He's not being hurt by all this. He's working a plan. He's working a plan that had COVID in it. And you don't know where this plan is going, but you know where it ends. Read the end of the book, Jesus wins. Spoiler alert. So here's the thing. We close chapter 9 with three stories. He sends out the 12. Herod heard about him. He knows the time is coming late. John has been killed. That's the signal, by the way, for him to to get alone and get with God and then face the cross. The disciples come back. They're all tired, and in chapter 9, verse 12, they get back, and they are so worn out. I mean, they've had a good time doing this ministry thing, but, you know, people, people get peopled out. So they're going, you know, Jesus, this has been great and all, but can we get a break? And Jesus said, I'll tell you what. I need you to pick up some baskets because we got 5,000 people we need to feed. See, because we're going to go on a little, you know, mission trip while you're all, you thought it was vacation, but it's a mission trip. And so out come the baskets. (laughs) Praise Jesus. And it's right after that that chapter 9 says, he then took them away up to the area of Caesarea Philippi because that's not kosher territory. He shook off all the crowds because everybody went, oh, that's too far. I can't be going way up there. And he sat him down and he said, boys, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You know, we close out his time with them with Jesus looking at them asking. Now, what's interesting is what happens right after. He's transfigured and they're all sucking great air. We got it right. We passed the final. And then they come to him and they say, Jesus, we had this guy and we were trying to heal him and we couldn't pull it off. Right after the height of we got it right came the failure of we can't do this without you. What? 
You can't run a ministry without Jesus empowering it. News at 11. And what's interesting is the disciples then come, and one of them goes, hey, Jesus, we were, we're standing up for you, man. There were people out there, and they were doing ministry, and they're not with us. So we told them. We told them. Yes, we did. We said, if you're not with us, you can't be doing that ministry and helping those people. You do it with us or you don't do it. And Jesus said, yeah, why'd you do that? Listen, you, you got it wrong here. The disciples thought they were going to serve for the fame. And Jesus said, the serving is the point. They're making their way toward Jerusalem now at the end of this long segment of Jesus' teaching. And as they're walking along, you know, early on in the ministry, they had gone to, do you remember the woman at the well story in John's gospel? They went to the Samaritans of all people, and there was a revival there. But then they didn't call, they didn't write, they didn't email, they didn't fax, they didn't even post anything on Facebook that let people in Samaria know what was going on. So the people felt abandoned. Well, the disciples are coming now, and they're coming back through a little sliver of Samaria, and the people are not responding to Jesus, so the disciples come out with a brilliant plan. Why don't you call down fire and make them toast? You know why? Because the disciples didn't like the Samaritans. At the end of the popular ministry of Jesus, here's what I want you to leave with. There are two things that are happening. Jesus is becoming more and more pointed about his teaching, and the disciples are becoming dumber and dumber. And their prejudice is falling all over them. I don't like Samaritans, so you can smite them dead. Now, you know, I know Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida didn't really listen to you either, but don't be striking them with fire. Just kill a few Samaritans and we'll be happy. It's amazing how our prejudices look. We're going to come back Friday, Lord willing. And when Jesus faced the last hours of his ministry, we're going to take him from this point through chapter 10 and run to the end of the book. That 10 through 19 are quick stories of things that happened in those last six months. And then he's going to face the cross. But here's what I want you to hear before you go. When Jesus faced the last hours of his ministry, how did he spend them? He spent them doing two things. He washed the feet of the disciples and served them, and he taught them the truth of God. There are only two things eternal that we have, the word of God and people. And Jesus left the popular ministry into the parting ministry and faced his own death, but not till he served people and not till he articulated carefully the word of the living God. He served them. And I want to show you Good Friday what that service looked like and how powerful, how pummeling that awesome time of Jesus' excruciating pain. You know the word excruciating comes from the word for cross? That's how bad it is. And all that he did for Father, thank you tonight that we could come together and we could look at the story of how you taught so many things. Lord Jesus, we come back to you over and over and over and say, 
We exalt you. We follow you. We are thankful beyond belief that you have cared for us so well. Now I want to just say a word, Father, to some young people that are listening to this story. I'm so thankful, Lord Jesus, that when I was young, someone explained to me who you are and what you did for me. I'm so thankful because at that moment when I said, Jesus, I want you to have my heart, take my life, lead me through this, I see what you did for me, and I, I have to respond. I cannot sit here with all that you've done for me. There was a pivot, a change in my life. Your spirit began to guide me. Your word became important to me. It changed everything about the rest of my life. And I know right now there are young people that are hearing me that have heard an awful lot of how wonderful the world is and how much they can offer and have heard precious little about how incredible you are, God, and how serving you is so full and rich. I've traveled the world. You've poured on my life good things. You've given me a wonderful wife, three incredible kids, three incredible grandkids, wonderful church brothers and sisters, people that, that love me and I can love them. You have filled up my life with good things. And I'm tired of the world getting to say into the ears of young people how wonderful it is out there when they've never laid their head on their pillow once without guilt. Oh, God, I thank you that when I lay my head on my pillow tonight, I will know there's nothing, nothing between me and you. And I can count on you. You are a good God, and you are worthy of exaltation and praise. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.